welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing to the feminism, dinner parties, female friendship and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Nana Dakoa. Nana is a Ghanaian feminist writer and blogger, and in 2022, she was listed by the BBC as one of the 100 most influential and inspiring women around the world. Nana is the former Director of Communications at the Association for Women's Rights and Development, and she was a member of the Black Feminism Forum Working Group. Nana also co-founded the award-winning blog Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women and has written for The Guardian, Open Democracy, Feminist Africa and other publications. Our May book um, is uh, The Sex Lives of African Women, which is her uh, book that was published in 2021. And in a commonest best book of the year, it was hailed as touching, joyful, defiant and honest, celebrating African women's unique journeys towards sexual pleasure and liberation in an empowering and subversive collection of intimate stories. Thank you so much, Nana, for joining us today. Thank you for that really beautiful, generous introduction. <laughs> no worries. I, I trawled the internet and there was so much stuff that you'd done. I um I yeah, I had to I had to put most of it in um because it's a really interesting <laughs> career. Um Thank so uh, which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? I mean, I actually love dinner parties and I feel like I throw feminist dinner parties regularly. So I'll bring three feminists, including two of my dear friends. Um, one is Rita Nketia, she's a queer feminist activist from Ghana. Another is another friend called Rosa Frie, who's a writer. And then I had to bring someone, I think, iconic. Um, I always, always, always wanted to meet Maria Angelou and somehow that never really happened. I feel like I've met her through her incredible body of work, but she's going to miraculously you know rise from the dead and show up to my dinner party and she'd be the perfect you know third guest for myself and my friends mm. how have those guests kind of individually inspired you oh that is such a great question I feel like Maya Angelo has inspired me to be bold and fearless I remember you know when I first actually came across her work I used to live in the UK and it was when I lived in the UK and I don't know if you or your listeners would remember Borders. There used to be a Borders on Oxford Street. So I remember walking into like the back of Borders because that was where they kept all of the black books and just browsing through the books. And I saw this book entitled All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes. And the title just grabbed my attention. So I picked it up. I was leafing through. And then I realized she was writing about Ghana. So that was the part of her autobiography I started with, which was actually the third in her collection. I loved it so much. I went and started from the beginning. But Maya Angelou always lived her life as a fearless woman. She was a single mother. She traveled the world. She taught herself to do anything she wanted to learn. She would just go into the library and read about something and then apply for a job, you know, because it was also really hard, especially in those times for Black people in the South to get jobs. Something that really stuck with me was um, scenes where she would describe going to the bar, sitting on her own, getting a drink, and leaving the bartender a really large tip. And that was something she used to do. And I feel like that's my vision of an empowered woman, to be able to go into the bar, 
have a drink by myself confidently and leave um the bartender a big fat tip <laughs> so <laughs> I mean I think she also inspired me to be fearless in my sexuality because she was fearless in her sexuality um incredibly inspiring in so many ways in terms of my friends they are in many ways my contemporaries but they're both activists I feel like their politics and their actions are in synergy, mm -hmm. which I don't think is something you always see. Um, and I see this in both my friend Rita, who's created spaces for LBQ women, particularly in Ghana. I see this with my friend Rose, who used to be in the States and was part of the movement for Black Lives in the States. And, you know, in Ghana is also supporting various groups. Um, I see it through the kind of creative work she creates. So these are people who I find inspiring. I think it's important to also find people in your immediate circle inspiring, mm. right? Um, because then you, you sort of support each other. Mm. Do you think that these three women uh, would get on for the evening? Oh, yes. I mean, Rita and Rose are already friends, so they get on. <laughs> and I think, I, I hope Maya Angelou would love us, mm. you know? But I also think she's one of those... Um, well, she no longer exists. I talk about her like she exists, but let me just talk about her like she still exists because mm -hmm. for my dinner party, she'll be there in real life. <laughs> I think she's one of those iconic old, older women who holds court and is able to hold court. So we'll be like, you know, the younger African feminist sitting at her feet, listening to her pearls of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think she will enjoy that. And we will greatly enjoy benefiting from her, her you know, just her brilliance. Mm. And what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening? Okay, lots of, okay, we can only have three tunes. I really like a song called Fluid by Emery, who's a Ghanaian artist. I have also been listening to, on repeat, I got it by Ogi, who is Nigerian-American. Mm. Um, and then recently I had on Spotify, Wada and uh, um, which basically translates as, you know, like more or less I Can't Sleep Without You mm. by a Ghanaian artist called Nara. And it's such a beautiful song sung in Tree, which is one of the Ghanaian local um, languages. And so I think these are the three songs that are going to be on repeat. And I think my guests would actually like them as well. Mm. I listened to them um, before we recorded and um, they're very kind of, they're quite mellow. Like, but yes, quite, they're quite funky, quite mellow. Um, not super upbeat, but really good for a good for a dinner party. I'm glad you think so too. <laughs> <laughs> so your three guests have arrived. Um, the music's playing. What does the kind of setup look like? Where are you eating? Is it your house? Where is it? We're eating in my house. My living room and dining room is open plan, and my kitchen. So it's very spacious and it also sort of flows into each other. Mm. And I have this like really large farmhouse type table. Mm. And so we are all going to be seated around the table. I like to have guests around the table and then to have like all the food laid out in the middle. So we can just like really take ourselves, take our time to eat. And even before we move to the table, when people come, I like for them to sit in the living room, have like a glass of wine and have some nibbles, you know, so that... You also had something as soon as you got in, and then when you get to the dinner table, you can luxuriate in the company. So then it's about the food and also about the people that you're spending time with. Mm. So yeah, the the room is going to be dimly lit. I like to have like, yeah, I like dim lightning. 
um i just think that just looks it creates a much nicer ambience there'll be like incense burning or essential oils burning no it has to be essential oils not incense incense would be too strong for a meal so some essential oils are burning and then all my food will be laid out in the middle of the table it sounds really relaxing like a very slow relaxed kind of evening what what are you serving for yourself starter so I would have prepared everything beforehand. Um, I think that's like so important for you as a hostess to be able to just relax. Mm. I love, love, love like salt and pepper calamari. Mm. So I would have made that as a as a starter. I'll make dishes that are easy to make. I think couscous is like really easy to make because it's just like couscous, butter, pot of water, five minutes, it's done. You can add some chopped vegetables. Mm -hmm. So there'll be some couscous. I think like grilled chicken is also something that's very easy to make. You can season it from like the night before. So all of the seasoning really gets into the meat and then you just put that in the oven. So there'll be that. I like to have sweet corn because again, I find it very easy to make. So then you can have like sweet corn on the side. Like um, on, the, on the cob or? Um... Not on the cob. I like it when it's, you know, like, I don't even know how to describe it. You only have a, I like to buy that like a pack of frozen sweet yeah. corn, basically. <laughs> That's what, <laughs> you know, just you yeah. just pop that in the microwave for a couple of minutes, let it cool. And then, yeah, you have a meal that's already ready. Mm. Um, and then also something else I really love to make is lightly fried chickpeas. Mm. It's just the most delicious thing. I saw a recipe like years ago and Oprah's Oh Magazine and Oh My Goodness. That's been like the secret thing that I serve at a lot of dinner parties that everybody likes. It's just chickpeas in a can, drain the can, um, you know, put some oil on and fry that with like salt, pepper, cumin. That's it. Very simple to make, really yum, really tasty. Also that way, if any of my friends don't want to eat meat, there's enough like vegetables as a side. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's very like kind of simple, nutritious, easy for you, so you can actually mm -hmm. enjoy, enjoy the evening, but delicious as well. Absolutely. What about, what about for dessert? So we have this brand of ice cream, and I think they may be exporting it now. So maybe hopefully your listeners, wherever they are, can get some. It's <laughs> called Blue Skies. It is so yummy, mm. and it is vegan and dairy free, so it's not going to upset anybody's tummy. But it's just so delicious. Um, and so, yeah, I'll serve Blue Skies ice cream. They have a salt of caramel that I think is just delicious. Salt of caramel, that sounds delicious. Yeah, so we'll have salted caramel, Blue Skies ice cream for dessert. Amazing. And, I mean, what do you think the discussion kind of centre around? What, what are people talking about? Are you debating? Are you arguing? Or are you kind of, uh, I guess, finding support and empowerment within your discussion? I would hope that because we're with Maya Angelou, we'll be having support and encouragement mm -hmm. and be asking her lots of questions about her life, how she sort of dealt with challenges, what inspired her to keep going. For me, as a single mother, I'd be really interested in hearing from her how she navigated both being a single mother and sexuality. I think one of the things I really admired about Maya Angelou was she was very upfront and honest about her sexuality. And even in her later years, was still speaking about sexuality as an older woman, mm -hmm. which is something that I'm looking for more examples and inspiration around. So for me personally, I'll be really interested in that. 
at the same time, I don't think we'll be able to shy away from some of the existing challenges um, a lot of people in Ghana are facing now, um, where we have an anti-LGBTI bill that's you know being proposed in parliament. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we will also have that level of political conversation and ask her like, okay, what would solidarity look like if we were to also have solidarity from descendants of Africans and the diaspora, um, especially because Ghana has um, been attracting or be making lots of efforts to attract particularly African-Americans, you know, to return mm -hmm. to Ghana. Um, and I think if you're encouraging people to return to the country, the country needs to be safe for everybody, for the people who live here, as well as for the people who exist. And obviously an anti-LGBTI bill creates an even more unsafe environment for like, not just queer minorities, but for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll have that level of political discussion as well. Um, and mixed in will just be like fun and just like laughter and just encouragement, yeah. How do you feel the evening will end? What time is it ending? Are you going out dancing after? Are you staying in? I never have the energy to go dancing after dinner. <laughs> I'm one of those people like after a couple of glasses of wine, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for bed. So <laughs> yeah. I imagine, I imagine the evening starting around 7 p.m. and ending naturally around midday and everybody like has had a great time and is feeling like satiated both with like great conversation and good food and then giving each other warm hugs and you know mm -hmm. yeah everybody just going home I think that's a yeah there's, it's a lot to do didn't to host a dinner party and also leave your house after <laughs> I mean some people have energy I am I'm just not one of those people no I'm not I'm yeah I also lack in slightly in energy so <laughs> <laughs> completely relate um yes. so I mean I'd love to speak to you more about um the sex lives of African women uh wh why did you feel writing about this topic uh, was so important perhaps for you personally but also kind of politically Yes, uh, for me, it was super, super important to write about this book for a couple of reasons, right? I've been blogging about sex since 2009 when my co-founder Malaika and I started Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And on that platform, we invited women to share their own experiences around sex and sexualities. And part of what I observed over the years was we had so, so, so many stories when it came to sex and sexualities. Our stories were not one dimensional, right? So there were queer stories, there were stories of people being celibate, there were stories of people like questioning religion and sex. The spectrum of stories we had, you know, the stories of people having like wild, amazing, incredible sex. I just felt like it was so incredible and so much fun. And I never saw those stories reflected anywhere in the broader world. Mm -hmm. I also particularly felt that when it came to Western media portrayals of African women's sexuality, it was always limited. It was about, you know, um, African women as victims of FGM or as sort of women who are miserable in polygamous marriages or women who are constantly pregnant. And I was like, but that's not the whole story. That could be a part of the story. That's not the whole story. And so I decided that I wanted to interview as many African women as possible from the continent and diaspora, and then write their stories and put that together in a book. And my expectation was it would show the variety that existed when it came to our sexual experiences. And I mean, how do you feel that the sex lives of African women kind of 
perhaps help to remove or started to remove those deep-seated taboos around sexuality uh, in Africa? I hope it's a contribution, right? I hope it's a contribution to removing some of the taboos and just some of the misconceptions that exist around African women's sexuality. I also recognize that there are, you know, other African women activists who have been doing work like this for a while. Um, and some of them, even if their work may not have had the sort of widespread global recognition that I'm lucky enough that my book has found, you know, they have been doing this work. People like Sylvia Tamale, who's a Ugandan feminist activist, and lots of contemporaries as well, right? Whether it's, you know, Hola Africa, which is a queer Pan-Africanist womanist collective, or The Spread, which is a podcast about you know, sex and sexualities. Um, I feel like we have all in our various in our various ways have been, you know, trying to dispel the myth of 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 or the myth or an idea that African sexuality is one thing in a box, right? And just to show how how expansive it is, especially when you look at our pre-colonial traditions. Mm. Do you personally have a kind of favourite story or a story that you find most empowering from the book? Mm. It's hard, right? Because there are lots of stories that I love. I think there's a story that I tend to mention when people ask me this question because I'm like, I kind of wish that was me. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the story of Helen Banda, who's a Malawian woman who, you know, moves to the States, um, was in a fairly, you know, in quotes, normal heterosexual marriage for 10 years. And then she and her husband decided to open up their marriage. And I really appreciated that approach to thinking of relationships as not something that has to be fixed and static, but mm -hmm. as something that can evolve. I also really appreciated how they took turns in doing the childcare. You know, they also have a child with special needs and they took turns, you know, to look after their children so they could each have space to explore, to go on dates. Um, and I feel like in this day and age, it's sad, but still a lot of women, you know, have the majority responsibility for housework and child care, especially if they have a child who's ill. And that takes away from their ability to do so many things, including space and time for themselves, including space and time to explore their own sexuality. So I think that's a way in which that story is special to me all of those reasons I mean I yeah I remember reading that one and how um as someone who is in her mid-20s and unmarried um it was so uh kind of empowering to hear a story uh from someone who's older um who's still exploring their sexuality Absolutely. and still kind of moving through that journey and that your sexuality doesn't end when you're you know, when you turn a certain age, 30 or 40 or whatever, that it's this kind of ever evolving thing and that you can continue to explore it when you're with a life partner that you've also chosen mm -hmm. to. And I, yeah, that's a really, it's a great story, but I mean, I love, I love them all, but <laughs> that one particularly kind of stands out definitely. How, how did you find um, writing the book kind of, how did it personally affect you? Of course, the project plays a massive role in your own political activist kind of more public work as an African feminist but how did the book change your relationship with yourself if at all? It's a great question I think what the book 
made me do was look deeper into my own life, especially traumatic experiences I've had, because I don't think I've ever seen myself as, as somebody in need of healing. But one of the things um, interviewing so many women brought home to me was how many of us I need of healing, including myself, right? And how the work of healing is ongoing. It's not, oh, I've had therapy and that's it. Or, you know, I've journaled and that's it. It's, it's a daily practice. And it's also politically important to take space and time to heal and for our society to provide support for people to heal. And yeah, I think that's something I discovered about myself that I too am in need of healing. And that's something that's actually more important than I thought. I think that's because I'm a fairly high functioning person. I felt like I had no issues. <laughs> I had no stuff. And, you know, um, because I interviewed myself for my own book, I was like, oh, you've got stuff you need to deal with. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> so in some ways it kind of, it was a form of therapy for you. Yeah, it was. It was. And I think for me, that's what writing has always been. Mm. Writing has always been a place of therapy. And it's also been a place for me to think through. Like literally the act of writing is how I figure things out. As I'm writing, I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. Mm. You know? Mm. Do you remember the first time you wrote about sex or sexuality? I remember, yes, the first time I wrote about sex was this, was that the first time maybe that wasn't the first time but an instance that comes to my mind was when I wrote a really short piece and submitted it to what at the time was called the Farafina Writers Workshop um later renamed the Purple Hibiscus Workshop it's a workshop that Chimamanda Nguze Pichi the Nigerian writer runs or used to run in Lagos and that was the first time I was writing about my experiences of being sexually abused as a child so that piece of writing you know um kind of stuck with me and there's a portion of that in um, my chapter the chapter about myself and sex lives and do you remember the first time you read about sex or sexuality oh gosh so much I used to read Mills and Boone all of the time <laughs> as a child I don't even remember what age I have a cousin who's a romance writer her name is Nana Malone and she, she tells the story of how um, she lives in the States. They came to Ghana on holidays and I sort of slid a Milton Boone across the table. And I was like, read this, it has kissing in it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I've definitely always been an evangelist for, you know, um, being sex positive even from a young age, yeah. So you feel that kind of erotica and, and erotic literature plays a really important part in, um, the freedom of sexuality and, and learning about sex as a young person? I think so. And of course, you know, literature and erotica can also be problematic, like everything else, because it can be reinforced in like particular standards of beauty or unrealistic notions of what sex and sexuality are. So I guess what I would say is I think feminist erotica and, you know, it's, it's what has the potential to be life-changing. Mm. And, and at your dinner party, do you think that you and your guests will discuss sex and sexuality? Do you think you'd feel comfortable doing so with Maya Angelou as much as you would? Oh, yes. Gosh. <laughs> because she has been my inspiration for just being a bold 
you know, sexually confident woman. So this would definitely be part of the topic of conversation. I will definitely be asking her about how her sexuality changed as she got older. You know, what does she know now that she did not know before? What tips she has for us um, as people who are younger than her, not necessarily young feminists, but like younger than her. So that would definitely be part of the conversation. What what would be your advice to a young feminist? Because our you know most of our club are um, in their twenties, if not all, I think. Um, and uh, young feminists, what would be kind of your biggest piece of advice for um, you know young women navigating that space and their bodies in that space? I would say first of all, you have so much time ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, seriously, don't feel like. I mean, and I, I think feel and know that your best years are ahead when it comes to sex, right? I feel like sex gets better the older you get. I'm speaking from personal experience. And you get, because you get more confident about your body, you also get to know what works for you. Um, and the older you get, the less fucks you give, which makes sex better. You're <laughs> able to tell your partner what you want. If you don't have a partner, you're able to figure out how to please yourself. I would say the 20s is really the period to explore with yourself most. That is what I would I would encourage. Yeah. Do you yourself kind of read a lot around the subject of sexuality and sex? Um, and if so, what what books would you kind of most recommend that you find really powerful? Um, other than yours, obviously, <laughs> on the subject of sex and sexuality. Yes, um, there was a book, I'm trying to remember the title, it was, oh gosh, what's the title? You know, I, I'm so convinced that menop perimenopause is making, is giving me brain fog, um, <laughs> because this is a book edited by Tiffany Mugu, oh yes, called The Quirky Quick Guide, something like Quirky Quick Guide to Sex by Tiffany Mugu, and I really love that book, it's, Anthology is Dell, um, and it looks at sex from so many different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, like there was a man who wrote about the soft serve, right? And actually referring to the joys of having a soft penis during sex, which I love because I feel like in our cis hetero obsessed world, people act like an erect penis is needed for every sexual encounter. So for someone to write about the joys of the soft serve, I thought was really just like <laughs> radical. I love the name of that. <laughs> it's very funny. Exactly, exactly. What do you think of ice cream, right? Yeah. So at least it made me think of ice cream. <laughs> so I really, I really love that. Um, there's also the African Sexualities Reader by Sylvia Tamale, which you know is a mix of fiction, nonfiction, analysis, poems. I think that's really seminal reading. Um, I will also add to that the Queer African Reader, edited uh, edited by Sukari Akin and Hakim Abbas. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll say these are three of some of my faves. Mm. And um, in kind of your future plans, is there anything we should be like looking out for? Are there more books that we should be reading from you? Um, what's kind of in the works at the moment? So I'm currently researching and. I want to say writing, but I feel like I haven't really gotten into the writing process. So I guess I can say I've started the work 
of my second book, um, which I'm super excited about. And in a nutshell, I'm looking into like pre-colonial ways in which Africans shared knowledge around sex and sexualities, as well as our own like traditions and rituals around around sex and sexualities. Um, and like it's super exciting and also anxiety inducing. <laughs> <laughs> anxiety inducing in terms of, you know, oh my God, I have a second book to write and excited that, oh, I have a second book that I'm working on and that's super exciting. Is is the writing part your kind of, your favorite bit about what you do and what, what your, your career? Or do you prefer kind of the research bit, the interviewing bit or? Exactly. you know what I think I prefer that then that comes out of the writing when the book is out in the world and you're having the conversations um about the issues and I think it's because I'm an activist so the issues drive me you know um the writing is kind of like my thinking process um and then once it's out in the world when we can talk about the issues I feel like I really really enjoy that I also enjoy writing but at the same time to writing can be like I don't know, it can also be anxiety-inducing because it's like, oh, I have to get this done and it needs to be really great. And I feel like I definitely have second book syndrome as well. <laughs> um, Nana, I really loved your dinner party. I think it was a beautiful evening. The food was delicious. The company was brilliant. Um, I loved the ambience and the music. Um, I always ask my guests, uh, one final question um, to kind of end the discussion. What are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist? Oh, it is such a great question. I think what I'm actually doing on an everyday basis to become a better feminist is taking some time for me, mm -hmm. right? I feel like it's so easy to give, give, give of ourselves until we have no more to give and the way I do that is usually by going for a walk for about 40-45 minutes every day that's my time to like sometimes respond to voice notes sometimes to listen to like an audiobook um, and just taking that time to pour into my own cup mm -hmm. as part of how I'm able to be a better feminist. That's a lovely answer thank you so much Nana for joining us today. Thank you thank you so much.